Welcome to the Startup Grind Podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you gotta be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a startup grind. Hey there and welcome to Monday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today we have a conversation with Sarah Bird, CEO of SEO Moz Inc., better known as just Moz which has really become the number one source for SEO content and tools. Sarah has overseen the growth of Moz from a few hundred to over 23,000 passionate customers from all over the world. Sarah serves on the board of the Washington Technology Industry Association. She regularly speaks about culture, entrepreneurship, search marketing, and business models. Her credits include the University of Washington, Fledge, Startup Weekend, the Microsoft Accelerator Program, Seattle Tech Meetups, the White House Summit on Working Families, the Seattle Interactive Conference, and Defrag. She was named a Top 100 Women in Tech by the Puget Sound Business Journal. Let's listen into Sarah Bird, interviewed in Seattle by director Mike Grabham. So Sarah, how's your day? <laughs> you know, it's good. It's good. I'm, I'm on my, towards the end of my second glass of wine here. Um, just good. come up a long weekend, so it's pretty good. Yeah. Stack with one-on-ones, so I'm getting like the pulse of the business, get my head back in the game. Good, good. So, so tell us, you've been that's first time CEO. Did you call your mom when you when you came CEO? Did you call your mom? Oh no, <laughs> I don't talk to my parents about my work almost <laughs> at all. I'm not sure they know what I do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if they did know, they wouldn't really know what you did. They would just know you you had a title. Or oh yeah, I actually I was nominated for an award and there's this big um, there's this big banquet. It's CEO of the Year Awards. I couldn't sure. even say it. It's so embarrassing. And <laughs> I was n- it didn't even occur to me to invite my parents to come <laughs> to this award <laughs> show. Yeah. And then someone at work, I think it was my assistant, was like, "Well, well, so I'll let your parents know that you're I'm like, "Why?" You know, it didn't it didn't occur yeah. to me. Yeah, exactly. She's like, "Cuz they're your parents." Yeah. You know, it's like, "Oh, well, all right, let me think about it." And then I then I did invite them. But So so it's an adjustment, obviously, coming from not being a CEO to being a CEO. There's just it's just different, uh, you know. There, it is what it is. Um, Can I say more about that before you even yeah. go on to finish? Because okay. I don't actually think it's as different as people think it is in yeah. my mind. But yeah. I could be doing it wrong. Uh, I don't. I don't know. If there's a right way to do it. Well, so fair enough. I mean, from my experience, I th- what I thought would be different, right? When I was given the opportunity and Rand said, "Hey, I'd like you to do this role," and I was thinking about it. Um, I thought, wow, it's going to be so much more work. It's going to be so much harder. And um, that isn't true. It's different work. It's yeah, different right. work, but it's not more work. I don't know about you guys, but I'm already working very hard anyway. As COO and president, I was already working very hard. And so in some ways, it, the job got easier, which I was not expecting. But it, when you are a key executive, you have got to, you only have your influence to make things happen in the organization, right? So it's all about, well, how well can I use my influence and listen and my ideas and my personal leadership skills to make something happen? When you're a CEO, you still have to do that. And you can also just say, well, that's what we're gonna do. And people are like, yeah, that's what we're gonna do. <laughs> so it, like that actually simplifies a lot, a lot of things. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, it makes, your, makes the uh, decision, well, the bigger decisions a bit easier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and 
So you've been in that role for two years. What was the what was the one thing that surprised you that you didn't expect? Um, there's there's a couple things I suppose. Um, one, I didn't expect it to get to in some ways be easier. That was a pleasant surprise. Um, what else surprised me? Um, that everyone told me it is very lonely at the top. I was prepared for that. It's sort of a truism. It's so lonely at the top. <laughs> I haven't found that to be true. But again, maybe I'm doing it wrong. So like, f it's only been two years, and I could be doing it wrong. But I have found that it's only lonely if I make it lonely. Yeah. It stops being lonely the moment I like share the problems with the team. And I'm like, I don't know. What do you guys think? What is this? What do you know? What do you, what's going on here? Right? And then it becomes all of our problem. And, I, and so I haven't yet had that loneliness feeling. Um, I will say something that was harder about it. Um, I actually, I really hate being like on television and radio where I'm like recorded. No offense, it's all fine. But <laughs> I don't like it. I've never liked it from the time I was a little girl. And that is a part of the job. That is a part of the job. So I, I just fake that part. I just fake like it's no big deal. And like I'm totally fine with it. But I, I actually hate it. That's funny. It was one of my questions. Because <coughs> I, I knew you didn't like it. Yeah. So I was going to ask you how you've, how you've adjusted to that. Just doing it. You're just like you say. You just fake it. Do it. Yeah. Because it's not public speaking. I'm perfectly fine public speaking. It's the recorded artifact <laughs> that for some reason there's this part of my brain that's like, this is going to be used against me sometime. I don't know when. I don't know what for. But undoubtedly, it's, it yeah. will be used against me. It will be used only for evil. Right. So you and Rand have a, uh, what most people call is an extraordinary relationship. Um, I mean, you've been at the company for well, basically forever. Um, so how was that relationship with Rand? I've had Rand. I've interviewed Rand. I think three times in different things, right? So he's. he's I, I definitely understand his, the quirkiness and who he is. Um, how has that helped you, just as you as in your position, having that? Because that is that actually is unique to have that kind of relationship, and to be, at the top and and have. It's just that's unique. So yeah, absolutely. Um, so Rand inspires me in many ways, and he always has. I would say Rand um, inspires me to be more transparent than is my nature, because he's, he's, for him, it's like, and he says this himself, it's like not real until it's on the internet, even if it's his own life, right? If he hasn't <laughs> blogged about it yet, it's not like a true feeling yet, you know? I mean, it is, it's how he lives, like so transparency. There's no separation between like what's on the internet and how he's feeling in the moment. And, and like that's pretty radical, right? Yeah. I mean, that pushes even me, who I'm a pretty open person. There are very few things that are off limits for me. Um, and that's good. I need that. I yeah. like that, right? And he continually pushes me in that way. Um, he's also a bigger supporter of me than I am of myself most of the time. It would never have occurred to me to be the CEO of uh, a tech company, let alone Moz, when I started. Sure. Or even when he said I should be multiple times. I was still like, you're crazy. We've got <laughs> one. He's good. You're fine. Um, so, so those things have helped. And then as, as we made the transition, as I, as I had to change my frame of reference for why the transition was happening and how I could help Rand, um, you know, that, that the relationship changed. And in some ways, in some ways we were both disappointed by some things that didn't change and relieved by things that did. Um, for those of you who don't know, and again, you can read about it on, it's Rand's very public. He was suffering from depression and, um, that was one of the main drivers of his reasons to step out of the CEO role. Plus, he hates most of the stuff that a CEO does. Like, he hates it. So, uh, so he transitioned out. When he first t told me he wanted me to be the CEO, um, I thought he was joking. I eventually, after several months, realized he was quite serious. 
And we came up with this plan. It was like a year-long plan where I would, um, you know, a year from now, I'll take over the role. And we ended up pulling up the timeline because I finally had this epiphany, like, he's kind of asking for help. Like, he can't wait. I had, I had sort of approached the problem from my perspective of when will I be ready. And um, first of all, no one's ever ready. You're never ready. There, so there yeah, you go. Just and do then it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, right? Just do it. Yeah, yeah just do it. And then, and then secondly, I had to stop being so selfish about what I needed to be set up for success and, and think about Rand and the company. So we moved up that timeline. Um, I think he and I were both hoping that there'd be some like crazy epiphany moment where he'd be suddenly like relieved and happy about everything and, and wouldn't that be great? But that's um, it's actually not how depression works. <laughs> uh, I've, I've <laughs> learned a lot about depression by having this partnership with him, which is yeah. great. Um, we had this like unhealthy cycle for a while where he would say, this is awful, this is awful. And I thought I would try to um, say, well, it's not that bad. Like this is good and this is good. And, and I was trying to help cheer him up or make him feel better or help him see things sort of more fully. And I didn't realize at the time, but that actually um, just makes a depressed person feel worse. Like I didn't understand enough about depression to know how to respond to depression, right? You're supposed yeah. to just <laughs> listen and just say, yeah, that sucks. Just like be with them. Like they don't need your judgment. They don't need to feel bad about their perspective. They know they just need to be there. They just need to feel heard and loved for their, for where they are in that moment, yeah. right? And um, that took me a really long time because I'm kind of a fixer, yeah, and yeah, I'm yeah. really optimistic. So that was that was hard, and it took us it took us a while to break to break through that. Um, but we're a lot better now. He's feeling a lot better. He's just shipped a great product. He feels really proud of. Yeah. Um, so it's. We're definitely like in our places, but there was no like rip the bandaid off moment. Suddenly feel he feels great. And isn't this the most wonderful thing we've ever done? You know, <laughs> took time. Yeah. And so over the last three years, three, yeah, three and a half years or so, um, you know, back about three years, there was some definitely some product issues. Um, what did you learn in your different role then, you were COO then, but what did you learn through that thing, that that issue, and then what did the company learn? So the first question is, what did you learn, and then post that's company? Yeah, so for those of you who don't know this story, um, we, on, in 2012, we fundraised on this idea of we're going to build an all-in-one sort of inbound marketing platform, right? We had an SEO product. We were going to add on social media and content marketing and local SEO, and it was going to be this sort of great all-in-one platform that's going to do everything for every... SEO-oriented person. And um, we got the money, and we started building on that. It took us, we built it exactly the wrong way. Like, uh, some, some mistakes you have to make on your own multiple times before you're, you really believe them, before you really know them in your gut to be true. And we did the classic, like, imagine everything you could ever want in a product, and we'll, we'll make these beautiful wireframes that will be so detailed, there will just be no confusion for the engineers, and they will be so delighted to have our very detailed rich, very thorough specs of everything that we possibly want in this product, right? And, um, and, then we, and then we'll give it to the engineers and they will say, thank you for this very detailed roadmap. We will begin to build and, <laughs> and they will tell us with certainty, right? Yes. Uh, it, will be do, it will be done in whatever, you know, this 40 weeks, come back. And, and, um, and then they begin to build. And, like, and of course, everything goes horribly wrong from there, right? Um, and uh, and it, they go, it goes wrong in all the very predictable ways you think it will, right? Where your assumptions about what customers value are wrong. And so we had built this big fantasy castle of what we thought customers wanted and sent the engineers on the road path. And like, it wasn't even what customers wanted, which we can get back to, because that's part of my personal learning. Um, 
we were like the method by which we were building was wrong. We did not start with like let's take this one section and rebuild this one thing and get some feedback on that and then build from there. It was like a big totally new back end, new middleware, new front end, new brand. By the way, we were added the rebrand from SEO Moz to Moz was supposed Moz, to be part yeah, of that. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of a basic disaster. Um, and, and we didn't, um, you know, as a leader, there was a lot going on. And so as I would hear sort of from the engineers, like, we're working on it. It's coming along. And you say, okay, well, show me what you got. Well, it was working yesterday on staging, but now we just <laughs> deployed something that's not quite working. Come back tomorrow. And like these sort of series of things that, um, should have been a sign for me that I over, that we had overwhelmed the engineering organization. And to their credit, because this is not about engineers being bad, it's, it's the opposite. It's engineers wanting so hard to help you succeed and to help the company succeed. And that they, they, they wanted to work on it, to, to build, to actualize, and they had high confidence because they're very talented. And so I think we all thought that we don't need to follow the regular, all the learnings from Agile, like we were somehow immune and that we could, we could be different. Um, and so we, we didn't even have a process to realistically surface how far behind we were. Sure. So, um, <laughs> so and, we had, and we thought we were gonna do this big bang. We had this terrible marketing idea where we thought like, we'll just, we'll <laughs> shut down our current new acquisition funnel and we'll put everyone to a wait list. You couldn't even sign up for the old product because <laughs> the new one was gonna ship any day. <laughs> and so we ended up having the wait list for nine months where we weren't getting new customers in and then shipped it, right? And then it turned out we had built the wrong things. We hadn't discovered for how long, it was just so, so, you see like the number, like so it was both um, what we designed had some major fallacies around um, sometimes more is just more and customers don't value it, it actually makes the experience worse. And so we thought we were being so generous, like we'll keep the price the same but we'll add all these features, it'll be stickier and retention will go up. No, like there, there is, they don't perceive the value in it actually, they just feel like it's more complicated and they're harder to use. So we learned this, a lesson that sometimes less is more um, we learned, uh, don't go, like, waterfall, you are not <laughs> immune to waterfall. Like, it, <laughs> it's, it has the same potential pitfalls at every organization. Yep. And so change the way we build to sort of much, you know, smaller ideas that we test into. Um, and then three, we totally royally screwed up acquisition, right? Like, you don't do the wait list and yet, unless you have a much tighter launch process and deadline. Wait lists may work, but they do not work for nine months, right? I mean, yeah. it's... There, was many th there were many things. And on a personal level, I learned about um, speaking up more. I think that was a, um, as a COO at the time, I had concerns about approach. I voiced them very tentatively, very tentatively, which I shouldn't have. And then said, okay, well, you guys, you all got this. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna focus on these out. other things. Yeah. Like I'm gonna focus on you know, all of the hiring we were doing, we were doing some acquisitions, like all this other, all this other stuff. And um, I wish I hadn't, right? In hindsight, I should have been bolder about some of those, about some of my concerns. Like, wow, this big bang launch idea <laughs> of suddenly unveiling one day, it's a whole new product and a new brand, ta-da! It's, it's, it's basically inviting risk. So I wish I had spoken up earlier. Yeah. But we got, we're, we're much better now, friends. <laughs> yes. Man, it's a whole talk different, about leadership whole moments, right? Whole different, yeah, it's a whole different could, world now. Yeah, I mean, you have to push, you, everyone was working so hard to make this launch happen. And then it launches and you don't get the numbers up and to the right. We got numbers down and to the right after the launch. So it wasn't even like a psychological payoff of your hard work was worth it because now look at those numbers go up <laughs> and to the right. It was like, oh, 
hang out, you know, like hang in with me here, guys. Like, don't give up. Thank your families, and I need you for another like four months to redo this. You we'll know, fix hang, this. Hang, like, stay with me here. Only you can help. Like, you know, it was it was very it was very challenging. It was yeah. very challenging time. Um, we were definitely a different different company today. today. Yes. Yeah. And what makes you different today? Oh gosh, we build and ship much more incrementally. We um, we have a lot more visibility into our projects um, across the orgs. There's a lot more like, hey, I'm not seeing progress here. That <laughs> means there's a problem, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like a lot don't sort of don't fall for the like it was working yesterday. <laughs> you don't fall for that anymore, yeah. right? Um, uh, we do a lot more dog fooding of our product and our product ideas way more, way more. Um, we would never do a total you know, refactor everything. We would do a section. We do uh, a page at a time Just now. in case you don't know what dog fooding is, that's giving smaller pieces, smaller changes at once instead of doing one big major push. Yeah, and, and use it ourselves first, right? So we do smaller pieces, use it ourselves. We have marketers on our team, so we should be able to ask our marketers, what do you think about this marketing tool, yeah. right? Does it suck? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, could it, what could be better? Um, so, so, so a lot of, a lot of different things. I think some other aha moments for me that came from that was, like I said, this perception of value. We're very generous. The G and tag fee are core values. It's generosity. And so I really did just naively cling to this belief that if I give customers more, they are going to love it and stay longer. It's this sort of feature fallacy. And I clung to that for a very embarrassingly long time until we did enough research and sort of enough kind of come to Jesus thoughtful moments like, wait a minute, We're, they don't, not all customers want all things and it's just reducing the overall value of the product and it's increasing complexity and now they need more help getting onboarded. And so we changed our strategy to sort of breaking up the feature sets so that people can buy what they want and only what they want and then they feel happy. And if you want more than that, you are welcome to buy more and we would love it. Um, but it's a, it was a mind shift for me. Yeah. So you started the company 2007, right? Um, that was... Was that was that was before the breakup with Rand and his mom? So another interesting story. I just I, I just like to touch the story because it, it's it works with the founder dynamic when you have t two co-founders that are either good friends or maybe possibly even brothers. Um, so um, there's people in the room that have that scenario. So so Rand Fishkin started well. His, his mom and Rand started the company. His mom was the CEO. And you can tell the story yeah, quickly. So she was the CEO of the original company, which yeah. is a consulting business, marketing, and he was her employee. And then it started to take off for this SEO stuff that Rand was really, really good at. And so he became the CEO and her the president of the next generation sort of version of this consulting, switching to software company. And... Um, they are very public about this story. First, I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable <laughs> before it's, I tell the story. It's in it's Rand's blog. Story. It's in his blog, <laughs> and it's on the radio interviews. Yeah, exactly. So even though this feels very intimate, I don't, I don't want you to think I'm betraying some like yeah. awkward corporate secret or something. Um, and you know, within months... Th there is no awkward corporate secret. No, there secrets. really aren't with Rand. Not there a there Moz. There can't no, be with him. There can't be. <laughs> um, and within, you know, within, within months of starting, I real at Moz, I was the eighth person, I realized like there is... There is a problem here, a very serious problem, like a complete disconnect between what Rand was doing and he thought the, the company was doing and how Jillian was running the company. And um, 
And that was hard because she, she was also running in the company in a way not to be malicious. She's a wonderful human and she doesn't have a malicious bone in her body. So we're crystal clear about that. But she thought that part of her job was to shield him from the operations of the business, right? So that he could go and do creative SEO work. And so she was doing, in her mind, what was helpful, right? But it left Rand without all the information he needed. You can see the seeds of why he cares about transparency, right? It's because he has this sort of, this is what happens when you don't have transparency. It blows up and it gets really messy with family, right? So as you can see, these sort of the genesis of some of these core values, right? Um, and it became, it became really awkward for me because I have like, Rand was a good <laughs> friend of mine. I am in operations. This is his mom, a woman I like admire and came to learn something from. And this is completely dysfunctional and not helping the company. And uh, in my role, um, so I have empathy for those of you in companies who have founders who are struggling, was to help them see each other more clearly <laughs> and make the transition. And I tell you, that's really, really hard to help someone say, hey, this person you love <laughs> is completely on a different page than you are, and you are working towards opposite ends. And your whole team wants to quit because they're caught in the middle of your drama that you don't even know is happening. So let me unfold for you <laughs> the drama. And, um, and you know, it's interesting. So I, um, I joined Moz without any startup experience. I was practicing law beforehand. And I often will say, um, it was such a terrible idea, right? Like, why did I join a startup? Like, no one, no startup needs an attorney. Like, why did I, why not was especially that? Especially not why, at eight. Yeah, no. not an eight person. Like, why, <laughs> that should never have happened. It's an awful idea. But at the same time, in hindsight, because I had this long trusting relationship with Rand, where we had been friends for so long, and he knew my character, I really think I am the only person who could have delivered that news to him and helped him see what was happening in his organization in a way that allowed us to move forward and allowed the, the founders to sort of separate their role, to increase transparency, and to eventually move Jillian out of the company so she could do the things that she wanted to do, right? Um, because I think if anyone else had tried to have that conversation, he would have said, you're crazy. You're crazy. You don't really understand what's happening here. But, but he, luckily, he trusted me enough yeah. to do that. Yeah, that was, that, was a, that was messy. It was super messy. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I can't yeah. even imagine yeah. working for your mom. You can imagine. Yeah, work for your mom, and then Thanksgiving dinners, <laughs> awkward. Awkward, really yeah. awkward. <laughs> um, so, what, what part of your job today, today, May thirty first, do you love? Oh, um, this is kind of sick. So I, uh, it's because it's both the thing I love, but it's also like the hardest and the worst, right? And it's the people. So I love trying to figure out what motivates people, what they're interested in, how their brains work, what challenges they like to solve. But of course, the people are also the hardest part of the job, right? That is the hardest part of the job, yeah. without a doubt. And so it's this weird sort of sick, like, love-hate thing I have with a lot of the day job of, I think, CEO is really actually human psychologists, right? Sort of therapists, human psychologists, because most people have the answers within themselves, and they just need you to sort of talk through Ask them, questions. You ask the right questions, remind them of our goal, and then they have the answers within, and then it like it ends up being okay. But um, it's also the hardest part. Yeah. And what do you hate about your job? I mean, letting letting go of people I care about, right? When, oh, when yeah. there is a when there's yeah, a when there's a person on the team that I think is a wonderful human, who has been trying so hard to do the right thing for Moz, but they're not what we need right now. That is, that is always the hardest part of the job, absolutely. Yeah. Everything right. else is like, you can kind of make, I mean, it's sad when it happens, but it's okay. I mean, part of the fun part of business is 
making decisions with limited information <laughs> or you know like all the all the other kind of hard stuff solving customer problems designing pricing is fun like there's a lot of challenges that are like fun <laughs> sure. you know pricing is fun pricing is fun i actually <laughs> wish i got to do more of that but my role is not pricing anymore right <laughs> yeah. like that's not ceo level work when i'm like but what if it was 129 instead of 139 <laughs> that's not ceo level work right? um so. and um what do you think what do you think for sarah has been the biggest challenge over the last say five years for you as an individual so obviously the rand thing is a big deal uh, i don't know how hard that was for you but yeah I think it was harder on rand yeah, poor soul absolutely. right yeah. it's harder on him um so what's been for you what's like what comes to mind when i say yeah the hardest thing it was hardest thing there's different kinds of hard that's why i'm struggling like so like let's let's talk let's all, I'll reframe that what's been the most challenging thing for you emotionally at work so um so the most challenging thing now which i will compare i just want to contrast with earlier in my career before i had more of the coping skills i have today like I experienced things less emotionally challenging than I do uh, now than I did then, right? At the time, sort of, if I had a disagreement with Rand or helping him transition his mother to her next thing, like that was very emotionally challenging. And I was like, I wanna quit. Like there were times I almost quit. I, you know, I remember talking about it with my husband, like I, I don't think I can do this. This is not worth it, right? And, and having that sense of like, I'm in the wrong place for me. Um, or even a time that wasn't even a challenge, but a self-limiting belief, right? And in 2011, 2010, we were like 50 people going on to like nearly 100. And I kept thinking to myself, like, Maz should fire me and hire someone who knows what they're doing. Like, <laughs> exactly. This is ridiculous. The company was getting more unsuccessful. Like we hadn't had, we had gotten over the sort of like founder transition stuff and we hadn't had the like major product screw up of 2013 yet right yeah. and so it was sort of a sweet spot golden era in theory right um and i was filled with more like man they should really just find an executive <laughs> who's been to business school who knows how to run all of these different things i was running and um that was emotionally challenging in a different way right and yeah. i had to overcome my own self-limiting beliefs and fund and something more fundamental which at the time, I was laboring under this belief that if you had a lot of experience, suddenly you knew all the answers. That if you had an MBA, you would know how to make the spreadsheet that would give you the <laughs> answers. Yeah. And it took me, <laughs> I joined this, I joined this, um, <laughs> it's called Vistage. There are many different kinds of groups, right? But it's a peer executive group where you go and you talk to other executives about what your challenges are and you do problem solving together. And I joined this group and it's called Vistage. And I remember going to the first meeting of my Vistage group and seeing all these really experienced senior executives yeah. and being like, this is what I'm talking about. These are the people <laughs> Maz should hire. These <laughs> souls right here, this is what an executive looks like and sounds like and does. Yeah, and like, yeah. they seem so confident. And like, and my entrenched belief that I was not up to par was so strong that for the first two or three sessions of this monthly meeting, I interpreted everything I was seeing through this filter of other people know the answers, I must be bad. And luckily I stuck with the group <laughs> because over time I began to realize like, wait a minute. He doesn't know any more than I know. They're all here <laughs> for the same thing I am. Like they, are, they have the same kinds of problems. Like yeah. there is no magic bullet to any of this. And these are very, they were very experienced, very smart people. Like that doesn't take anything away from it, but like th there is no shortcut to firing a friend. 
right? There is no shortcut to realizing it's not business conditions. It is this person is no longer a fit to your org and knowing the difference. Like that's just hard no matter how long you've been doing the job. Or there's, it's, there's no really easy way to reduce this line of business while you're trying to grow and incubate this whole new line of business. It doesn't, it doesn't come, become easier overnight, right? Um, and so I, luckily I said, it, I luckily I stuck with it and I refactored this to like, oh, it's not about me being bad, it's about business is hard, but that can also be the fun of it if I let it. And so I kind of went on this, you know, maybe two or, two or three year journey of, of thinking differently about challenges. They weren't these like potholes that I could get trapped in and fall to my death. They were mountains I could climb that yes, you need to, like an athlete, you need to train. You need to train hard. You need to get skills. You should take coaches along with you when you're climbing a really hard mountain. But even the people who train really hard still sometimes totally biff it on that mountain, right? You can get killed on that mountain no matter how good you are. And you can't, you can't, you shouldn't do it if you don't love climbing mountains. <laughs> right? If you don't like mountain climbing, do not climb the mountain. And so I think of I think of CEO and entrepreneurship in general like that now, right? It's not something that I'm inadequate at. I'm just an athlete on my journey, training, and some days the mountain kicks your ass, and sometimes I kick the mountain's ass, and like that's the fun of it, right? That's why we do it, just for yeah. that challenge, and because yeah, it's there, you know. <laughs> that's why. Because yeah, the mountain's there. Yeah. Um, a quick break from the Startup Crime podcast for some recent startup headlines. Apple is said to launch Siri on Mac as well as providing additional third-party app access. Reports also suggest that the WWDC will focus heavily on the digital assistant and its new capabilities. Facebook will soon delete sync photos if a user doesn't download the Moments app. Users who previously auto-uploaded images via Facebook's main app have until July 7th to install Moments or have those images automatically removed. They can also download a zip file ahead of time. Joy has launched a Kickstarter for an icon-based octopus watch aimed at children. The device notifies them of scheduled events such as brushing their teeth or getting ready for school. Joy raised $115,000 of a $50,000 goal. Let's get back to the interview with Sarah Bird, CEO of Moz. So it's a question I ask almost every, well, I think almost every guest that's ever been on stage. How did you earn your first dollar that wasn't from a relative? Oh, interesting. Um, I have a long history of being a cleaning lady. I love cleaning. <laughs> I love yeah. I love cleaning, which my husband would be like appalled at that. He'd be like, prove it. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, prove it. <laughs> exactly. I haven't seen that happen in yeah. well, it's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> actually one of the re- I was just telling Carl this actually, one of the one of the reasons I knew he was the man for me, he was the first man I dated who was more O C D than I am. <laughs> Oh my God, it's such a relief to be in the relationship where you are not the like crazy nag. It's yeah. wonderful. It's a great relief. It's like getting into a warm bath. <laughs> it's like, good, you nag for a while. Thank God. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so yeah, definitely cleaning lady. It was under the, it was under the counter cleaning lady because I went to school in Canada. How and old I wasn't were you? legally allowed to work. How old? Um, I was... Um, how old are you, age you are when you go to college? 17, 18? I don't know. Yeah. I'd worked at my dad's office before that as a dental um, dental assistant and cleaning lady. I'd also done other, obviously, babysitting, right? We don't count yeah. it. I assume you weren't talking about all the babysitting jobs. No, I mean, like something like, you know, painting a fence or whatever. Yeah, else like the yeah. times or mowing the lawn. I mowed, a, I mowed a lot of lawns. I was pretty good at it. Pretty good at it. Um, or I, when I was a very little kid, I um, would steal rocks from the neighbor's yards, put them in my rock tumbler, and try to sell them back to them. Nice. <laughs> they didn't buy. They didn't buy. They didn't buy. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Well, yeah. at least you're at least you're First honest about it. First failed business. Yeah. <laughs> First failed business at an early age. Um, 
So your, your process now of making decisions, is it any different than it was three years ago? Oh, um... Do you think you're, you're, you're more transparent? Do you think you... Is it any different today versus three years ago? I mean, it's different in the sense of logistically, it has to be different because the, the bigger the organization gets, sure. the more you have less access to truth, right? Someone told me the other day <laughs> that the CEO's <laughs> job is the constant search for truth. Truth, yeah. To right? asking questions. Yeah, and I and it because you know, like, your rank disrupts a room, you have a filter, people present to you differently, you don't really know what's happening on the front line. Because no one tells you really way. the truth. Yeah, I mean, it's just hard. <laughs> Not because they're malicious, just oh. because, like, They've got other stuff going on. There are other motivations and stuff, right? And so you're just constantly trying to be like, well, that's not what so-and-so told me is the holdup. So now I've got to go talk to so-and-so. And like, well, so-and-so says that's the holdup. Like, what's the holdup? You know, you've got to figure stuff like that out. So it's different. Um, it's different than that. I've always been, I've always been, from a decision-making perspective, my default is consensus. So I've had to work not to be consensus. It's still hard for me. Um, my default is to overanalyze and wait for data, um, <laughs> which it's, so it's still hard for me today to make decisions when I yeah. feel like somewhere out there is a unit of data that we could capture and I have to really put, so those are the ways I have, we all have defaults, right? Some people are knee jerk decision makers, just whatever, just do it. I don't want to even think about it anymore. Just do it. And other people are, let me really pause and be reflective and, you know, I have a, I have a, um, literature background where a great a person who's great at literature is good at asking questions and problematizing right answers are frowned upon problems now that is the mark of a brilliant mind right so that like <laughs> totally works against you in um in leadership so I, i've had to push myself more towards that direction i think i could still get better at that actually. yeah yeah so you're you're including but you're, you're learning that you still need to make the decision sometimes and i and um i need to, i do need to make the decision and I need to get more clear with myself, like what information are we waiting for? Is there any other information out there yeah. that really truly is gonna move, change our decision? Or if, if the information isn't out there or if it's a year away, fuck it, just make the decision now, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and so now the company is, it's probably got a little different product development process, I'm assuming, versus you know three years ago, four years ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's certainly true. Um, like one of the things that um, Rand and I are different on, right? Um, Rand is so in the moment. He's very yeah. he's an in the moment person, and so he um, he wants to make decisions in the moment with whoever happens to be in the room <laughs> while he's feeling the moment of clarity for himself, right? And uh, and so as a consequence, like we have like weekly E team lunches together, and like decisions would be kind of made ad hoc sort of on based on whatever information or thought came up in that lunch, right? Oh, we're going to shift this direction. New priority on this thing. And when you're a small company, I think that can work pretty well because you're all close enough to the stakeholders and where the work gets done that that is actually nimble and, and great and um, you have all the information. As you get bigger, and you, the executives do not have all the information to make the decisions. We don't. We think we do sometimes, but we don't. Um, that became really frustrating for the rest of the team, right? Because the people who actually did the projects and did the work, who had the information that we could have used, would suddenly get delivered unto them, new projects, new initiative, yours is deprioritized, yeah. and it felt very out of the blue. And so they experienced it as chaos, right? Whereas I was, I'm, I'm still today very committed to, I want people to own their stuff. 
I want you to own your project. I want you to own your problem. I want you to tell me what the right thing to do is. Like, I, my best days, my most awesome CEO ship is when people come to me with like, he, here's the problem you asked me to solve. Here's Here the is the very best way to do it. Here's what I need to make it succeed. Like that's my best day, right? Like that is when people really own their stuff and they come to me. I don't want to make a lot of decisions, actually. I hope I make very few decisions a year. I hope they're the right ones and the strategic ones, but I hope most of the decision making doesn't happen at my level, right? And so we, we've changed to this planning process that is um, hopefully much more supportive of that kind of decision making where every 90 days we do a retrospective on the previous quarter, right? How did you do? Did you hit your action plan? Did you hit your key results? It borrows from Google's OKRs. There, if you don't know what those are, check out the video. It's on YouTube. It's about an hour long. It's very cool. It also borrows from RallyDev. They make that agile software development it's, um, tool. It's very cool. And it's a very inclusive process. They do a retrospective and then, um, and then do sharing your plan for the next 90 days with everyone in the company, right? Um, not everyone can be in the physical room because we don't have a room big enough and that would be a little bit chaosy. but we have probably like, what, going like 60 people in that room? It's a lot. It's 60 people in yeah. the room every 90 days it's to do the retrospective and then the prospective, what's going to happen. And then in that sharing of the, this is what my team is going to do to solve the problem in the next 90 days or the problems we're working on, um, great context is transmitted for decision making. Like there's much more transparency around what trade-offs are made. We identify missing dependencies way better now than we used oh, yeah, to, sure. like way better. Yeah, feedback. Yeah, it's a, it's a rich tight, and then you, you kind of go away for that afternoon and you try to problem solve the like, wait a minute, I can't do both your projects and I need to, so we need to make a decision and shit in street. and the next morning you come back with it, okay, now this is our real plan for the next 90 days and each team shares it out. Now what I like about this is, um, one, the teams have accountability. I don't want to tell each team what to work on. I want to tell them the problem to solve and then I want them and they tell it to each other it doesn't just go up the chain of command. They're, they're committing as a team. And the, the most magical thing that happens in teams, right, when it's accountability to your friend, your colleague, yeah. instead of your boss, that's like a way better peer pressure, right? <laughs> like that is way more effective. It's your, it's your professional integrity. It isn't how good are you at managing up. So, so that's what I love about the sort of collective experience. So much context of the business is transferred. It helps break down silos. It's definitely not a perfect process. I haven't found one yet, but... Um, but I'm really enjoying what it's done for us. It's, it's definitely helped the team with autonomy, right? Of feeling like we own our problems and our projects and we have creativity over solving them. Yeah, yeah. And, and in that process of moving, moving people to that OKR, OKR process, what was that like? I mean, that, oh, that was wasn't... awful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because that's, yeah. that's not natural from where it came from. I mean, I wasn't—I was never worked at Moz, but yeah. I mean, I can kind of imagine working with Rand. That yeah. you—you're—you're you're pretty fluid. Yeah, it was—it was—it was. It was um, How do you make that transition? I guess. Yeah. So first of all, there was still there was the good news is there was hunger to change, right? Yeah. Like, you know, like it's that—it's that piece that's um, that's hard. Um, so there was hunger to change. I think people at first. Um, we're really challenged by how are we possibly going to have 60 people in a room and have it be an <laughs> effective meeting? That's impossible because we weren't great at meetings. Yeah. Um, and we had some um, paid facilitation help. I sent some team members off to get lots of training on facilitation. And it, it actually, and that's another sort of side benefit, is it becomes a way to teach people what does it look like to hold a better meeting, like to come with an agenda, to work through issues. We tried some, we tried some like, 
post-it notes, brainstorm activities, like those bombed. I love post-it notes and like being able to give feedback on post-it notes and grouping ideas. That's totally my scene. Totally bombed at Moz. People like, I think they were gonna riot and quit their jobs and walk out en masse if we had them do any more post-it note exercises. So like we had to shift away from post-it notes. Yeah, Turns out they liked like worksheets. People like enjoyed having a worksheet ahead of time that was sort of like a form that they could have, and then you could submit it, and then everyone could read the other forms, and then like, and then we can work from that. Um, so like, we had to learn. We had to learn yeah. along the way. And like I said there was a lot of skepticism that there's no way this could be productive. But by the third and fourth time we did it, people were like, "This is good. I understand how this works. It can help us. I see the benefit." Yeah. But man, if we had given up after the first or second time. Who knows where we'd be today? I'm glad we stuck with it and made some changes, right? Sure. Gave up on the post-it notes and, yeah, yeah. and, and whatever. But yeah, you, 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 you succumbed to no more post-it notes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in, in again, in this process of, of developing software, because that's truly what you do, um, what did you think you were wrong at? Oh, when you gosh. started, I don't think we have enough time. <laughs> I'll tell you one of the first. Well, no, let's just not start when you first started, because when you first started, you didn't know anything. Yeah, I knew nothing. But like, let's say f three or four years in, when you kind of knew a few things, what do you think you were? You're just your your gut and all the things was just once you started to figure out, like even like the new system, like holy crap, that's that that I didn't think that way at all. Man, I can see that's a much better way. Yeah. What what was the thing for you that? Um, one of the one of the sort of later blooming realizations that I should have realized a lot earlier took me way too long. Um, I held very dear, until probably a year and a half ago, to the idea that if you have to bring humans into your software purchasing or even support, you your software sucks. And so that the sign for success for me was like, it doesn't take any human intervention to buy it or use it or understand it, right? And it was like, it was more of a design maxim. I thought like if we held on to that, it would assure that we are building highly intuitive, very usable mm -hmm. software. Um, it, despite the fact that for years people would ask us, "Do you have any training? I'm willing to pay <laughs> for it." You know, like yeah. who can oh I? Oh no, talk we to? don't have any training. Can I call Oz? anyone on the phone? Like, I mean, for years people were asking for that, and I just I think we we all of us and I like genuinely bought into like humans are bad. <laughs> we shouldn't have to have humans. And that's probably also part of my like introversion. I have, I have introvert streaks and, you know, didn't want to <laughs> have to do that. Um, so it's, it took too long. Now I've totally, I've realized like, Hey, for a lot of people, that's their process. Just cause I don't like calling people on the phone and chatting with them about software. You know, a lot of people love it. And it, for them, it's a brand experience and they get more value. And, and also, the um, a disconnect I had made was, I think that not needing human intervention may be a still a worthy goal for a very simple lightweight product where the problem is very un well understood. Where if the problem is like, I know, like I wanna buy an airplane ticket. I know what it means to buy an airplane. I know what airplane tickets are. <laughs> and there's only a couple like inputs. Is it a window or an aisle or and how much does it cost and how many layovers? Like it's a pretty well understood human problem. Like I think you can have a no humans goal. But for SEO, which is yeah, very dynamic, wow. changing all the time, 
There are experts who still don't always know what to do any given month, depending on what's happening. Like you can't, there is no, it's, it's a, I set myself up for an unachievable goal. Like it's yeah. not a well understood problem. The UX won't solve it. UX will not solve that problem. <laughs> it can help. Like I, it's like, like I Good shudder. Good UX is still yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, I still, sh I, sh I don't want to send the message to my team, right? Like UX doesn't matter because it does. Um, and we have improvements we can make on UX for sh certainly, without a doubt. Um, but it, but it, it doesn't solve it sure all doesn't. the problems. No, and, yes. and, and more importantly, humans, we have something to offer other humans as humans, right? That there's a limit to how positive a good feeling you can have with software, and that for a lot of people, they enjoy other humans, and that Mazers are actually pretty great. I enjoy hanging out with Mazers all the time, and apparently so do a lot of other people, because they enjoy <laughs> chatting with us. They enjoy you know, tweeting yeah. at us. It's part of the, yeah. the fun. Like They feel like they're part of the team, and so it isn't just like this is a crutch to get someone using the software better. It is actually part of the fun of being in the family, yeah. right? And so I had to like completely, like, yeah, how do we get more human interaction? How can I get them to talk to a Mazer? <laughs> Like, you know, that's, it's a new goal. That's success, right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think, that, you know, even today, because a lot of, you know, the engineers in the in the world, w we want to, I'm not an engineer, um, so I shouldn't say we, uh, they want to make it so good that you, like you say, you don't have to talk to a human to do this task, but some people like to actually talk to someone or have an FAQ that they can learn from. Yeah, it's a we had FAQs. In fact, I over-relied on them. I thought if our FAQ was better, <laughs> we wouldn't need to have these pesky human inter interactions. <laughs> How do we get? We, we, we would have to have a phone help, call. You yeah. know? How do I automate <laughs> getting help to people and help content? How do we get better at scalable help content? And again, not like those are bad and that we should stop, right? but just misunderstanding fundamentally what it means to have a human interaction and how positive that is for your company. It's like almost not related to the software exactly because yeah. people are buying into your whole company, right? They're buying into your whole process and your culture and how you think about the world and like Which that is part of it. Which has so much more value. So much more value. Tons. I mean, that's really what, and it's crazy now to think about how I was sort of pushing that away rather yeah. than being like, man, they all want to hang out with Mazers. <laughs> that's great. I should have been celebrating that, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, how do you think you are helping the marketing person today versus what you were doing three to four years ago. Oh, wow. I mean, how um, much has that changed? Or yeah. Or well, marketing has changed a lot and continues to change. It's so dynamic. And yeah. that, dy that, um, what do you think has changed for you guys? What's the, well, we have, uh, we have a lot more, there are many more channels that even on inbound and SEO that you can invest time in and thought into, right? How much of it should you be doing keyword research and on-page optimization versus content strategy and <laughs> content development? And which channels should you be looking for influencers on? And should you be publishing? Like, we, I think for a long time there was this idea that everything's going to consolidate down and it's either going to be Facebook or, gonna be, it's, or it's going to be Google and that's who's going to win. But that actually hasn't been true, right? Like there's yeah. actually, it continues to fracture and there are more and more interesting communities out there for different kind of niches and different use cases, which is good for me in the sense that whenever there's like fear, uncertainty and doubt, people want an expert to help them, right? So I benefit from that. At the same time, I will not lie to you that there are many days where I'm like, why couldn't I have chosen an industry that just sits still for a minute so I have time to build the software to solve the problem that we have, right? I mean, it is, it, marketing, digital marketing is so dynamic and there are so many different channels that you're, we, are, we are likely, if, if Moz fails, it'll be from indigestion, for sure, right? It'll be because we tried to do too many things, all of which yeah. are valuable. These are valuable, and these are your valuable, valuable channels out there, um, but it's so dynamic and there's 
this transformation to, to digital interactive marketing and experiences and mobile on top of, I mean, it's all, it's heavy, it's big. It is really big and it's really dynamic. And I, I get jealous of um, like even something like Workday where I'm like, the fundamental relationship between boss and employee doesn't change that much. Some things change. And like, how great would it be to just be Workday and just be like, there are like three, three or maybe four things we have to do really well. And it's like recruiting, performance management, time off, right? And then like org charts. And like you can kind of work on those four things and like count that the whole nature of the universe around those things isn't going to change that much yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> compared to digital marketing, right? So I'm kind of jealous. Next time, next time I start a company, yeah, next week, exactly. it's going to be something next time you, you do can that. Like, get, a, get a grip <laughs> into and hold on tight and then be good. And where do you see it going? Well, like, so give us, uh, oh, wow. give us some... Like yeah, I, I mean, like everyone, I am fascinated how... The, the potential of mobile layered on top of the already interacted and connected world we have could, be, could enrich our experience as consumers. I live in everyday fear of the reality of the sort of mobile and location-aware experience actually feels really awful. Like the reality as, as business people like us are planning it is like, you'll get a coupon sent to your phone when you walk by my shop. Like I have no interest in that. That does not inspire me. I am not motivated by it. But then when I do things, like I went to Disneyland in February, and you know they've got Disneyland right now, Disney World, beg your pardon, is so interesting right now, right? They've got their magic bands. Mm -hmm. They've got these like various beacons and geofences all over the park. They know everything we're doing, everywhere that we go, and they use it to enrich my experience, right? I didn't have to check into my hotel room. Like, I just, I got off the bus and went to, my, I knew which room it was, they'd emailed me. They'd already checked me in. I already had my band. I didn't have to talk to a human. I just went and like swiped it on my door to get in because it's all just yeah. band swipes. They knew what I wanted, my preferences. There's no waiting in line for a ticket at the, f or no line waiting, right? Like they're, they're, they're working on eliminating lines altogether because they know where you are. They take a picture of you in the park and they know they can't sell you that picture unless they can attach who you are to that digital photo. And so they have these sensors now where the, the guy taking the pictures knows who you are because he can read your magic band and they can email you, you want to buy this photo? It takes all the friction out of all this. And that to me is fascinating, right? When you go to a restaurant, they're fancy restaurants, there's no like wait to be seated. Go pick a table in our fancy dining room. The waiter, you can't order ahead if you want. And they will just find your table and bring it to you like magic. Like you didn't have to check in with anyone. They're just like, and good day, you know, the McMillans and welcome. And here's this for you and this for you. And because they figured it all out and they're all tagged, right? And that to me is a like truly magical experience that I look forward to like getting to taking out the shitty parts of life rather than the like, oh, I just really wish someone would send me a coupon. Like, I don't, I, that is not inspiring. Like, <laughs> only I had a coupon. It's like, kidding? K kidding. Give coupon. me a break, you know? Um, so I, I look forward to when we get past this, what I consider to be like an immediate hurdle of lack of imagination, boring marketers and business people have taken over, you know, hijacking what otherwise will be really cool technology when we get there. And you add like VR onto that. I mean, it's, some really cool interactive experiences to make life much more creative and imaginative and fun and connected that um, marketers will be able to exploit and build their brand on for good purposes that genuinely create loyal customers. Yeah, yeah. We haven't actually got there yet, but we will, right? We will. <laughs> like right now the conversation is boring, but yeah. we will, right? Yeah, we will. We're going in that we direction. We're going in that direction. They are out there. We just have to get past all the boring ideas first. Yeah. And you are out and about a fair amount and doing events similar to this, right? Um, what companies have you seen that's been kind of interesting? Oh, wow. 
you know, it's funny. Actually, I really like your give now. Give, give safe. Give safe. Yeah, because I was just out with Brett. Are you still here? Did you have to go home and put your kids? Brett had he had to leave. Brett, yeah, he had to, he has said he had a kids thing. But um, I like that. I've been one of the activities I've been doing actually was getting more involved in the income dis- disparity problem we have here in Seattle. Right, sure. our, our growing Gini coefficient is embarrassing Huge. to me. Yeah, yeah. It's really embarrassing. And um, Brett will take you out with other tech folks on the Union Gospel Mission around the corner here in their vans. You've probably seen them, kind of cheesy looking vans, right? Love or whatever on the side. But it's um, <laughs> it's a really powerful experience to go and yeah. like drive around and hand out socks and hot chocolate and, and to, you, to and people and living. And it's, a f- it's not for the faint. It's not for an hour. It's you're out there for four hours. You're out there a long time. Yeah, I went out yeah d- no. we did it last a uh, few weeks ago. Yeah, it's um, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing um, that we have. I mean, I've traveled the third world a lot, and so I've, I, have, I have seen, you know, I've been to New Delhi and been to the slums. I've been to Jakarta and been to the slums, right? I've traveled in the Near East. I've been, like, all over. I've seen poverty. I've spent, I spent times in places that have a lot of poverty, but I have a higher expectation of Seattle, right? I have a higher expectation that we can do better. This sort of, like, not in my city, not in my country. There's too much, w- like, waste here, and we have too much to give and too much to offer, and it's just embarrassing to me that we have such a huge population making their home under I-5. It's embarrassing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so uh, it's you know spur of the moment, but I wanted to like give your project a little, a little love and take this as an opportunity that I think that one of the great things I admire about tech and that inspires me in tech every day is it's filled with optimists and it's, pil- it's filled with people who believe the world can be different because if you don't have optimism and if you don't believe in change, you're not gonna go to tech, right? You're gonna get a nice <laughs> job yep. at a bank or whatever, just like doing the same thing every day, right? But like we we are the people who need to like mobilize to make a change and to make a difference. And there is a disturbing rumor, and um, because firming into a a cultural belief that tech doesn't care, that people in tech yeah, are transient, all about the money and yeah, 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 that we don't vote, that we don't give a damn about anything but the bottom do- the bottom dollar. And I personally have never met a tech person who's actually like that. I don't believe it to be true. Um, so, you know, do whatever you can. I'm trying to get the word out to my people. Please vote. Please donate to your organization of choice, to your politician of choice. I don't care how you vote, but please do. And, um, you know, let's put, let's use some of our creative energy for this community. Wouldn't it be a shame if we ended up like San Francisco? Yeah. With that level of discord in San Francisco right now, and we have a moment in time where I think we can interrupt that narrative before it solidifies, and I do not want it to be true here. I don't think it is true. I don't want it to become true, and we can't let it grow into truth, right? Yeah. We've got to stop it. Yeah, and, and there's people definitely trying to, to do things like that. Uh, questions, guys? Any questions, feel free to put them in your head, and we'll uh, I'll get them going. Um, one of the things that, that I think that we don't do, uh, you know, a, a great job at is, you know, celebrating things that maybe are not, you know, profitable, so to speak, in the way of monetarily, but they're profitable in maybe a community sense or a human being sense. Um, so I think any way we can look for those opportunities, like Jonathan's Give Safe, um, you know, we should, we should all of us, not just you and me, and but everyone in this room should take that opportunity to, to, to just take an effort at it. I mean, take a, take a stab at it. It's not going to hurt us. Uh, yeah, you know. I mean, t- on that on that point, like small things you could do. This is this is silly, but it sticks with me. On that on that drive where we're handing out food to people who need food, we're handing out bologna sandwiches, white bread, and bolo- and a slice yeah. of bologna in it. That's it. There's no mayonnaise. 
two pieces of bread on a bologna sandwich, I wouldn't even eat that and I'm starving, right? Like, like it's even, it's silly to say, but like you could order 30 pizzas and donate to Union Gospel Mission for those, so that at least when they're driving around, people can eat something that tastes good and that may stick in your body because it has some fat in it, right? Like, I mean, like, come on. Like, it's yeah. just, we can do better, right? Yeah. We can do better. And it doesn't have to be even something grand. It's like, hey, this is our week to order pizzas for the Union Gospel Truck, right? Like, let's do it. Yeah, that's really simple. Uh, go ahead. Um, so the question is, were you involved in the, the, the raising of money in the process of Moz? And the answer's definitely yes, but go ahead. Um, yes, fundraising is, is a very <laughs> it's a strange thing. So um, I was not involved for the very first round. Um, I came on on money from the first round, right? That was 2007, and it was $1.1 million from Ignition. So I, I wasn't in, involved in that one. Now, we tried to raise again in 2009. <laughs> Nobody raised money in 2009. Yeah. It was like nuclear winter. It was terrible, right? And, and even though our business was growing, we were lucky we were profitable um, and, and growing quickly, you know, doubling revenue. And just we had all of the right KPIs. We had none of the pedigree. I mean, it was Rand and I. We have zero pedigree between us, right? I'm a I'm a lawyer, which should be like it's like skulls and crossbone. <laughs> should be a negative. To VC. It's a negative. <laughs> it's a drag, right? And I'm a woman, right? I'm yeah, a woman. I've never been a tech woman lawyer, like <laughs> clearly. Um, and you know, Rand Rand hadn't finished college or studied computer science <laughs> or anything, right? And um, so we were not uh, we first both of us first time entrepreneurs. We had zero pedigree, zero credibility, despite having a business with actual customers that was growing like crazy through um, some very difficult financial times. And we, luckily we didn't need the money badly because we were profitable. So we were very fortunate that we were not in a position where we had to take a bad deal. We were fundraising on the hope of, hey, we should be able to get a pretty good deal. Like we should, <laughs> we should really be able to, like, this is a good company. We didn't, we didn't have any takers and luckily we weren't in need of them. So we, we, we failed that year in 2009. Um, we tried again in um, 2010, 2011. The market had opened back up again. There were some deals going through. There was it wasn't as exuberant as it was last year and the year before, but um, there was there was money to be had, and we still couldn't get, it, despite again having a track record of doubling revenue every year, we still couldn't get a deal done that we liked. We d we could have if we were desperate. I believe we could have gotten a deal done. I, I want to be clear because I don't I want it. I know that it's different when you're profitable and you don't really need the money and you're trying to raise than for those of you who are like out there doing it just like full out entrepreneur. I've got a burn rate here and I've got three months and I got to close any kind of deal and I'll just take any money at all. Like I, I have a lot of empathy for that space, right? We were not in that position, which is great because it allowed us to um, stay, stay firm and not to have a lot of dilution and um, be picky about who we took on as partners because we're a weird company. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about that tonight, but Moz is like pretty weird, right? We do a lot of things that other companies don't do and like wouldn't really fly and our core values, I mean, we do all kinds of weird, generous, <laughs> empathetic things that don't really make a lot of sense in other places. So we needed to have investors who were like on board. Oh, and the transparency thing alone, right? Like, yeah. can you imagine? Like most, well, most yeah. investors are like, oh no, yeah, and even you when are you not raised, sharing. When you raise money, yeah. that was a, he was transparent to a... Yeah. Um, so that's... You're referring to in 20... Gosh, it must have been 2011. Yeah. 2011, when we almost had a... We weren't really looking, but we were kind of talking about should we look, and we were having a lot of inbound interest. And so we got to the point of a term sheet, a signed term sheet, 
with some investors and um, within 48 hours of signing the term sheet, they backed out of the deal. And they didn't hold us to um, any kind of exclusivity clause. There was no hijinks. It was just a one of yeah. the partner who had been talking to us wanted to do the deal. He got to his full partner meeting 48 hours later because it was Friday it was, and Monday they had the partner meeting. And clearly the rest of the partners were not on board, right? Um, and so they backed out. You know, that was really hard on Rand. Rand took that one a lot harder than I did. Yeah. In his mind, when you when you sign the term sheet, the money's in the bank. Yeah, it's done. And he, f he felt personally betrayed. Obviously. Um, yeah, obviously. If, if you read his blog post, you'll know that. Yeah, he wrote a very long, lengthy blog post by why, <laughs> how VCs are evil and they screw over entrepreneurs, <laughs> right? My experience of it was a little different, right? My experience sure. was like, well, uh, I don't count money until it's in the bank. Like a term sheet is a great step but it is not the end. And also, I, didn't, I, didn't, I knew there was no evil intent on the part of this VC, yeah. right? He, he just couldn't get his full partnership yeah. to buy in. And it would, I would, it would have been different if he had held us to some sort of weird, now you can't even shop this deal around to other VCs yeah. or blah, blah, blah. Like that would have been disturbing to me, but it wasn't like that at all. And um, I mean, gosh, I mean, I think he regretted it to the extent that <laughs> uh, there was a lot of um, so that's how we got, that's how we ended up doing the Series B. Within a month, we were closed on that. It was wild, right? We came down a couple days later, and Brad's like, meet with the partnership. We, we didn't even have a deck, really, because there wasn't, we, had, we threw some stuff together, but it, we didn't go through that. Ar who's, who's like making pitch decks right now? It's arduous, right? It takes many versions, and it's terrible, and it gets so much feedback, and da da da. We didn't even have time to go through that. Um, we just connected with Foundry, and, um, they're great folks, and they made the decision to like, hey, fund us. How much do you want? You know, you want ten? You want fifteen? Oh, okay, we can do that. Sure, and just and it just happened so naturally, yeah. so easily, so beautifully, and they've been incredible partners. I mean, shortly after that, right? That's when sort of the business went a little bit off the rails because we made our, our epic 2013 mistakes. And despite that time where we felt really lousy about it, right? We're like, God, this is amateur hour. We're amateurs. Um, Brad remained a constant source of support of, um, yeah, you screwed up, but I've seen a lot worse. And he always has like 15 other stories of like, I've seen a lot worse, you know, because he's seen, like we weren't ever near death, you know, and yeah. he's like, he lives on many companies near death all the time who come from back from it, right? Or who don't. And so it was so great to have his perspective to just yeah, to say it's okay to say, this is fine. This is all, my, yeah, you, yeah, we screwed up. Okay. Well, that's fine. What are we doing now? It's great together. Right, so it isn't. It is not a. It's only who you know. That is not the case. But that's why. That's one of the reasons we have such a diversity problem, right? Because sort of white people know other white people, and and the and the white people are the ones doing all the funding, or men know other men, yeah. and they're the ones doing all the funding. And so it isn't that people are evil. They're just doing what they always do, which is like hang fund with, people, people. I like know. That, yeah. yeah, it's like I like you, and we like the same activities, and we have relatively the same culture, and so. I'm going to see more people like you in my day-to-day -day business. And so it's harder to breach out beyond your group, right? If you, if you look different or you come from a different background, it's harder to get entree. Um, but it is, uh, so, so go prepared, right? Go, like, go knowing what they expect. And there are many articles about what they expect, you know, state the size of the market and the problem you're trying to solve and any key customers you have. I'll do all those things. Speak the language, know what your ask is, come prepared, but sadly it is who you know. So I'm glad you're all here tonight because like stuff like this is like how you begin to build yeah. those networks, right? Read people's blogs, under you know, go prepared with what are they interested in, what do they like, what do they don't like, so that you're not wasting their time. That's very helpful. 
Um, but God, I wish I had a better answer. I look forward to a more just world when it really is. Oh, it's no, no big deal. The most <laughs> awesome ideas win. Just email it. It's totally fine. Just email it over. Just email it over. You're in. <laughs> You're all good. Yeah. Uh, my thing well, I would add to that is you just have to constantly build relationships because if you know, you know, this guy over here and he knows Sarah or Brad Fell, then that's how that works. Yeah. It's not because, it's not that you have to have the direct relationship. Like, I didn't know Sarah, yeah. but I interviewed Rand, so I just emailed Rand. I said, Rand, let me talk to Sarah. Sarah just forwarded the email to Sarah, and Sarah and I talked and said, yeah, I'll do it. You know, yeah. That's how that works, right? So it's not just, it's not the one-to-one, -one, it's one to several, right? So yeah. that's why you come to this stuff. And persistence, like on top Absolutely. of it. I don't mean to say persistence doesn't count. Because there is a personality type out there where they don't know a VC, they're not connected, yeah. but they are very good at that. Um, hey, VC, I'm emailing you, not to ask you for money right now, but just to let you know, I have a project I'm working on that I know is interesting to you because I've seen your portfolio. If you don't mind, I would like to email you every few months just to give you any updates I may have. It's not an ask yet. Like I've seen that be helpful and persistent. So you. It, you can theoretically jumpstart some relationships, and you got to start somewhere. But man, it is so much easier to just build. Relationships. So the question is, um, coming from a you know fairly, definitely uh, successful and high-profile company here in Seattle, do you find yourself helping others trying to start? And do you think you will ever start from ground zero to start your own? Yeah, I mean, I hope I'm helpful. I try to be helpful. Um, I have found that I don't have, I do, I do quite, a, quite a bit of speaking and sharing, which I'm happy to do, because at scale, right, it's way easier for me to try to help at scale than it is to take you all out for coffee. <laughs> um, and, and whenever you speak, you then get hit up for a coffee afterwards by some key people that connected to your message, which is, which is fine if I had more time. And so I've had to change my strategy in a way that's a little, it's a little sad for me because I enjoy those one-on-ones and I wish that I could be on everyone's advisory board. But a strategy I've been trying in the last nine months or so is um, like I do a, I have a set happy hour. It's like a two hours once a month. It's at a bar and I go to the bar and I have this list of people that my assistant knows to email that are folks like who've emailed me after an event or something or cold emailed me that say, hey, I'd love to know you. Are you open for mentorship or I have an idea? And she just emails all of them. It's like, hey, Sarah's going to be at this bar for two hours. Come by if you're <laughs> available. And sometimes I. there's like one person and it turns into a one-on-one. -on -one. Sometimes there are like eight. And I don't always get personal time with people, but then they kind of connect with each other. And so like, I'm trying to find ways to scale it because my, my default where I like to engage mentally is on a one-on-one, -on -one, like bring your laptop, show me your pitch deck. We'll Let's do a dry details. run with some <laughs> folks at Moz. Like that's, I've done that for a couple people. Like we'll pretend to be VCs and you can pitch to us, you know, cause it helps <laughs> to get up. And I love doing that, but it is, it is tragically completely second. unscalable. It's <laughs> like, it is just, it will not work. Um, not given the other interest I have, which is a lot of this diversity and inclusion effort, right? So um, so I hope I'm helping some people. I'm working on trying to find ways to do it um, that is scalable. Do I ever imagine starting over from zero? Um, I do. I, I definitely do. Um, I mean, I think earlier today, like I still, like I was ideating earlier here, like, gosh, my next industry is going to be one that's <laughs> way more stable, that isn't constantly changing, and therefore I have a hope of getting product market fit, right? Um, so, so sure, I think about that, but not not in any like immediate, not in a near time frame, at all. <laughs> um, but it, I have a, I do have fantasies of other businesses I'd like to start. I'm really intrigued by 
hardware. I've never done hardware. It seems really challenging. I think it's I would really like hard. It. Yeah. I hate that. You, I hate that once you make a mistake, it's sort of like, well, oh. now I'm shipping a thousand mistakes hey. rather than the web page. It's like, huh. oh, you screwed up that on the web page. Well, we'll just fix it tomorrow. <laughs> you know, you just hot fix it. It's good. You know, I mean, I like, yeah. but I, I think I'd like the challenge and the logistic challenge of hardware. Um, I would like to I'll do more include investing. Some emails. Yeah. I'll include yeah. you some emails. There Come you to my happy hour. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Um, I would I would like to do some investing. I mean, I think it's important if we're going to change the kinds of companies that could get funded to have more kinds of people investing. And so I would like to be part of that. Um, that's a, that would be a luxury problem I'd love to have right now. All of my wealth is tied up in stock. So um, that's that's a future version of myself that will get to invest. Yes. So so the question is what is what was the thing or a couple things that helped really kind of kickstart the success what was the thing you know what was the kernels what, what were those things that really happened for you guys you know way back yeah um at least in your opinion yeah i'm gonna give i'm gonna two different things um one of them absolute 100 percent full credit to rand who built the community before we had a product right yeah. this was not a oh let's have to go to a bar and generate <laughs> startup ideas and like write some ideas down on a napkin and then like prototype a few of them to come up with which one is going to be our business right this was a, he was learning about SEO, he enjoys connecting with people online, he started blogging about what he was learning, I mean, it was a blog and a free community, that's why it was, it was originally a .org, for those of you who remember the olden days, it was seomamas.org, back when .org meant you had to be a nonprofit, right, and that's how it started. Um, so it was a community first, and that allowed us, I mean, it, t it takes a long time, as those of you who are working on it know, to build that loyal fan base. You can't buy into it suddenly. You can't be like, well, I just got a $10 million deal, so by next month I should have a loyal <laughs> community of people. Like, it only takes time and, and authenticity and all those good, long-term, generous things you do to build relationships online. And so we, we started that first, and most other startups are at the opposite of that, right? They have their product idea first, and then they have to slowly, over time, try to build up this loyal community while they're trying to get real customers. So they, they have this constant tension between should I do like um, SEM where I can pay to get an acquisition right now or should I put my dollars into a longer term play that's more defensible to build a community, right? And, you, and it's very hard to balance which one you do first. Um, we, we had the community first. So that, that is a, a major advantage to get started much more cheaply. By the time we had product, we had people who were willing to buy. Um, so that's one. Um, secondly, uh, we the the early team, the er and, and still many many parts of the team today, but especially the early team, um, it was so much fun because um, none of us knew what we were doing, and yet we all worked very hard and were very smart. And what that magic cauldron created was you're rife for innovation because you don't know better, right? Because you don't have a best practice. And so you do things that are a little wacky and innovative and that work for your team and you don't have all these preconceived notions you're importing from somewhere else, right? Like it's just a, well, I don't know, let's just do this for a while, right? And, and the initiative that comes from that, like the early team was full of people who were just like, I don't really care what my title is or what I'm doing. I just want to be able to do stuff and see my work have impact every single day. And so you could give them any kind of problem and they'll be like, okay, today we're all working on to figure out what pricing is or product development is or contracts or whatever the case may be. Um, and you know, as you get, as you get larger, um, I, one of the benefits is you can get more experienced people. More experienced people are often, unfortunately, also more risk averse 
They're frequently older because they have years behind them of working. Which jaded. Means they have, not jaded, no, they have <laughs> mortgages, <Yeah>. children, <laughs> spouses who have jobs awesome. or don't have jobs. Or like there's all this other stuff that as we get older, right, um, means that our, the amount of risk we can take on is lower. Um, and and so, you, so you tend to get a different profile of people. I get the benefit of their experience, but then I also get a lot, a lot more people who are more risk averse, um, who care a lot more about, well, this is my expertise. I want to work within my expertise because I've learned to play to my strengths. I'm not really interested in playing to my weakness, right? And so there's all this other interesting, like, again, human drama, interesting emotional stuff, but there are pros and cons on both sides, right, of, of having the young team when none of us know what we're doing. The so question is, w what is the key to finding these investors? Uh, so, Sarah. I mean, the totally depressing thing <laughs> yes. is it is absolutely who you know. <laughs> it is absolutely getting a referral. I wish it was totally based on merit and like the best companies win, but that's delusional and I don't want to like delude anyone here, right? It is it is not that way. It it helps to have someone make a personal introduction. That's the most important thing. And then of course when you get there you have to that waste time, but we don't really care because we're having a ball. And versus like older people who are so experienced, they, they bring a level of thoughtfulness and analysis. I'm not making the same stupid mistakes. But also if I want to churn the ship, it's way more effort on my part to like lead people through that transition, right? Because they're pretty entrenched in their, in their perspectives. That was the last question. Sorry. Um, thank you very much for being here. You're welcome. You're thank awesome. you. Thank yes. you.